This is my favorite way to do it. Well, welcome to New Day Vine. Like Chris said, how are you guys doing tonight? It is hot, man. It's hot. I like it. But like, I got to go to Honduras one time. I was like, only been out of the country a couple times, but they do church at night because it's too hot during the day. And I have to say, a pansy American going down there, it was too hot at night too. Man, but they, they sweat and sing and praise and get loud and it's amazing. Well, thank you for coming out. We are in a series called The Upward Journey, and we are talking about God, getting to know God, who is he, and when we get to know God, we have a catchphrase for the upward journey, beholding and becoming. We get to know God, and we become like God. Not surprisingly, this comes right out of the Bible, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And the idea is, Paul is telling his church, this is what we're doing. We want to stare at God. We want to encounter God. We want to focus on God, get to know God. Because in doing that, guess who we become like? We become like God. He rubs off on us. We become like the people we associate with. You will become like the God that you associate with. We want to associate with the Lord as much as possible. Get to know him, be like him. That is the upward journey in a nutshell. We've been talking about the attributes of God for two months. I am not talking about an attribute today. I stomped my foot down and I said, I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. It wouldn't be prudent. Actually, it would have been prudent. But I'm going to talk about something that I want to talk about that fits in. I want to talk today about God's motive. Why did he do that? I know, yay. It actually is, it does get me excited. Because if God was a person, we have to imagine it's 6.45 and the alarm goes off and God hits the, the alarm and he jumps out of bed, no snooze, and his first thought is, man, I can't wait to get up and go do whatever. Because of, if God got out of bed in the morning, what would it be that God got out of bed in the morning? What would his thought be? What would his drive be? What's the motivator that makes him do what he does and made him do all the things he did in the Bible? The Bible is a pretty thick book. Many of us have looked at the Bible and thought, how has a book so thick ever been written? And certainly, how would I ever read it? It is good. It takes a couple of years sometimes, but it's a great book, full of cool stories. God does a lot. Why does he do it? So I have some suggestions. I have some suggestive motives of why God might do what God does. Let's look at some. Number one, because God is an egomaniac. I'm just throwing it out there. We're doing his boo. Okay, all right, fine. Yeah, hold, hold your hisses. Hold on. Number two, because he's fighting with the devil. Maybe that's the theme of the, of the whole Bible. Maybe that's what gets him up. He's like Rocky. He's like, I can't beat him, Adrian. He's like, go all 12 rounds. <laughs> then I just won't be some punk from the street. You know, maybe that's God's motivation. I don't know. How about this one? A sadistic control freak. Huh? 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 Okay, maybe you don't think that. But let me tell you what. I have met people and I have read people that think, whether they'd admit it or not, that these are some motivators of God. Maybe even the primary motivator. But there could be another one. And not surprisingly, again, that's going to be my conclusion. But let's go through these real quick, shall we? This is going to be fun. Let's talk about God as a total egomaniac. You know, I've run into people, usually bitter people, and usually ex-Christians, ex in quotes, I guess, 
or people that don't really know that much about the Bible, so they don't really know God, but they have this view. I've known several, for real, that want to talk about how much God is just full of himself, and he's an egomaniac, he's a monster, he's the guy you wouldn't want to hang out with at the party. Here are two quotes I came across. This guy wrote a book, and he's doing an interview, and he says, Who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him, more so than we should love our own fathers and sons? It just seemed like an incredibly egomaniacal kind of claim to make. And this guy writes a book from the perspective of God as an egomaniac, and he's looking for another way that doesn't worship this egomaniac God that he'd been raised to worship. Here's another one from C.S. Lewis. Before he became a Christian, Lewis admits that God's demanding our worship seemed like a vain woman wanting compliments. Oh, I actually found these on a wonderful article. If you want this slideshow, by the way, I I haven't put it online, but I can share it with you, so just let me know. The links work. And the article that I got these from is actually quite good. It's from DesiringGod.com, which is John Piper's website, and he figures in later. Indeed. But let's look at some things that you might think. If you think God's primary motivation for doing what he does is he is an egomaniac, you would believe that God is a self-centered glory hound, and you would probably believe, as I said, that he's the type of person most people couldn't stand. If God showed up at a party, you would avoid him because he's just so self-centered. He would be a massive jerk. So let's look at this and let's ask the question, is this true? I know we want to hiss and boo and say right out of hand, no, this can't be right. But we're going to discover that it is kind of true. It's kind of true. There's some truth here. And we need to own up to the truth, okay? We're not, we're not scared of finding out what's true about this, right? All right, so here we go. Here are some things that God does for his glory. Are you ready? First, a quote from Jonathan Edwards. The scriptures speak of the creation of the world as being for God as its end. And that's true. God created for his glory. You can look at Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 and Romans eleven thirty six to discover that God created the world for his glory. Not only that, why did God choose the people of Israel again for his glory? You can look at Jeremiah 13, 11 for that one. Why did God restore Israel when they went off the rails? Why did, he, why did he bless them? Why did he bring them back? Surprise, for his glory. And you can see that in Isaiah 61.3. Why did God choose us, you and me, everybody here? Well, the Bible says, again, in Ephesians 1.5, for his glory. And Jesus is going to come back a second time to be glorified by his saints. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.10. This is all true. God is concerned about God's glory. Now, I want to say something that might seem a little weird, but follow me on this. If God was concerned with something else other than God's glory, would that make God an idolater in a strange way? If there's nothing higher or better than God, what else would God want glory for? So when you look at it from that perspective, it actually seems wrong for God to be concerned with making sure something else gets glory. But in any case, that said, these things are true. God did all this for his glory. But does this work as an ultimate motive? He hits the alarm, he jumps out of bed, and he's thinking, I'm going to look awesome today. I can't wait to engineer circumstances that make this guy get glory. 
And I'm going to say no. It does not work as an ultimate motive. Not an ultimate motive. The Bible says he does those things for his glory. But if we're going to say that's what gets him out of bed, that's why he did all the things he did, we have to ask some more questions. Why are we still here? You have to admit, three chapters into the book, we kind of slap God in the face a little bit, don't we? The whole sin thing. You had one job. You had one command. Don't eat of the tree. You guys are making me look really bad. My enemy just convinced you to eat the fruit I told you not to eat. Now you've fallen from grace. But the story continues after that. He doesn't wipe us up. So why is he so patient all throughout the Bible? And I would say with you and me too, why the continued grace? Why the waiting? Why the, hey, I told you once, I told you twice, I told you a hundred times, stop it. Seriously, guys, come back. Why the patience? Why the active pleading? He's not just patient with us, but he pleads with his people all throughout history. See things my way. Come back to me. Repent. Choose life. Live. Guys, He says in Isaiah, let's reason together, sit down, let's talk this out. Why is he doing that? Why did he bother to come to earth as Jesus Christ and be humiliated? Think about that. To be humiliated on purpose. You think it was an accident. He came to a little town, was born to a young mother in shady circumstances, was probably gossiped about his whole life, and then was basically a homeless vagabond who ran around until he was killed as in his adult life. And he was killed, how? By going through the pain and the trouble and the passion of the cross. I ask you, if God's primary motive was just to get glory, I think he messed up on a few points here. I think this could have been smoothed out. I think he could have tweaked some things and he could have gotten a lot more glory, maybe with less trouble. I don't think it works as a primary motive. Would you guys agree with that? Yes. All right. Plus there's this. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and, what's that word? Humble Humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11, 29. God might do a lot for his glory, but God is still humble. So this one doesn't work. This one's way out. Let's look at number two. How are we doing? Good? All right. God's motive, the thing that gets him up. Beating the devil. Gotta beat that devil. Rocky God. You know, every morning he gets up, drinks those eggs, hits the jog, he's got to beat the devil. Everything he does is geared towards beat the devil, beat the devil, beat the devil. It's like that's his, that's his mantra. He's got to get it done, right? He's hitting the bag, thinking about beating the devil. Does this work? Would you be surprised if I told you that there are popular somebody, air quotes, somebody Christians that believe this? And there are. And I read one. His name's Greg Boyd. I'm I'm telling you this as a long quote, because if you didn't hear it from him, you might think I was fibbing. Check this out. This is from an, an entry he wrote in a book. The biblical narrative could in fact be accurately described as the story of God's ongoing conflict and ultimate victory over the cosmic and human agents that oppose him. And then later he says this, flat out. The central thing Jesus did was to drive out the ruler of this world. That's the devil. So in that chapter, he's basically making this point. Boyd, this Boyd guy, Greg Boyd, believes that what Christ accomplished cosmically in battle with these cosmic powers and enemies is more fundamental, more basic, more primary than what he accomplished soteriologically, which is a fancy word meaning to pertain to salvation. So here it is in a sentence. Beating the devil was primary and salvation was secondary. 
This guy believes and makes the case in this chapter that you're saved as a byproduct of God's primary goal, which was to be the devil. So, we, I want to take a step back. I see some scrunched up faces, and it looks weird. And when I read this chapter, I'm reading this guy. Dude, I'm not going to lie. I was getting psyched, man, because I was excited. I was like, God's awesome. He beat the pants off that devil. Like, yeah, he beat the cosmic powers. Like, yeah, he did. Get him. But let's ask some questions first. If you think this is what gets God out of the bed in the morning, you, you would see the Bible and you'd say, the spiritual warfare motif, this theme, is primary in Scripture. That's the number one thing. You would also read the New Testament, and you would see that Christ's earthly ministry is presented as a battle against the devil. And not only that, you would see that the cross was necessary to free God's creation from demonic control. There we go. It's the number one thing. This is God's primary motivation. Drop the mic, walk away, game over. I've got verses and everything. But does that work as an ultimate motive? Again, it's yes and no. Because check this out. The spiritual warfare motif, this theme of God and the bad guys fighting, does run throughout Scripture. It's present in the very first chapter, and it's present in the very last. Throughout the whole thing, you do see this battle between God and the forces of darkness, between good and bad, between Yahweh and Satan. It's there. And not only that, Greg Boyd would tell you, and it's true, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. You can read that in 1 John 3.8. Also, Jesus did see his ministry as freeing people that were the devil's captives. Read Luke 4.18 and Ephesians 4.8. In fact, in one place, they're kind of ribbing Jesus about healing somebody on the Sabbath. And he says, hey, this person's been bound by the devil for such and such a time. Shouldn't I free them? So he did see his ministry as combating the forces of darkness. And in Colossians 2.15, Paul does say that the cross disarmed and humiliated these evil powers and authorities. And not only that, Satan is judged after the final battle in Revelations 20, and that ends the book. So doesn't that prove the point that this is primary motivation for God? Rocky God, got to beat that devil. Hit the meat, God. You remember that scene where he's in the butcher? All right, I'm... I'm, I'm old. We might not all remember it. There will be a screening of Rocky 1 at some point in the future, probably. This doesn't work. It looks good. You can cite a bunch of verses. It's all true that I just said, but it doesn't work as a primary motive for one super simple reason. You guys ready? If God is primarily driven to beat Satan, why didn't he just do it? Why didn't he just do it in the first place? Have you read about the final battle in Revelation 20? Let's look at it. Final battle, battle in big air quotes, okay? Check this out. And this is apocalyptic, prophetic literature, so it's going to sound weird. But this is what it says. This is the end of the Bible, guys. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Funny names, I know. Prophetic literature, roll with me. We're getting to the point. To gather them for battle. So the devil's gathering an army to fight God. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth that surrounded the camp of the saints. Oh no, so the bad guys are innumerable, they're surrounding the good guys, what's going to happen? And the beloved city, so Jerusalem. But, here we go, this is the battle, you ready? But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Now I ask you, 
Is that a battle? That's not much of a battle. That's more of a finger snap, right? That's more of a, you're destroyed, and they're destroyed. More of a command, like, and you're done now. Like, flipping the light switch. Like, and there's no more bad guys. We're all done here. Glad you came into one spot and made it easy for me. Let's go party. This is not a battle. If God's primary drive and motive was to beat the devil, he could have done this a long time ago. He's God. And if your God has been sitting around for thousands of years trying to figure out a way to do it, I think maybe we're not talking about the same guy. Does that make sense? All right. And we're left with the same questions anyway. Why are we still here? Why didn't he just beat him anyway? Why is he so patient? If his number one goal is to beat evil and he has the capacity to do it, do it. You don't even need to be patient. Just flip the switch. Why is he pleading with us? Why come and be humiliated and fight the devil when all you had to do was flip the switch and be done with it? Why, why, why? And why the cross? The cross seems really hard, really nasty, really painful, really gross. If fire could just come down from heaven and take care of it, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing, God? This does not work as a primary motive. It does not work. So let's look at the next one. This, this one's interesting. God's motive. Sadistic control freak. Hold on. Now, I'm, I'm going to paint this in the worst possible light. Can I just admit that right off, right off the bat here? Some people really do think God's primary motive is just to get glory. They're wrong. We just talked about that. But they really harbor that belief. They really think that's what he's like. And some people really do think his primary motive is just to beat the devil. I think that's wonky on all kinds of levels, but they really think that. And some people really do think that God is just some sort of cosmic, sadistic control freak who's just compelled, compelled, like he can't help himself. He's almost OCD with control. He just wants to control everything all the time, and he can't stop himself almost. Let me lay out what this theology would look like. Number one, you're God. You're sitting up in heaven, and you decide before creation... I want to make some people, and I want to make some people to go to hell, and I want to make some people to go to heaven. That seems like a good idea. You make people. Now that I have people, God is going to ordain every single human action, both good and evil, and now that I have people that I've created, and I know which ones are going to heaven and which ones are going to hell, and I've decided what they're going to do and they're doing it, I am going to ordain your besetting sins, so that habit that you have, that thing you can't quite shake, you think it's your fault, but I, God, have decided that that is going to be in your life, and you can't get rid of it because you don't have a free will. And not only that, but you cannot stop being evil without God's intervention, and he has already decided who he's going to rescue and who he won't. God the control freak. Again, if you're familiar with theology and you know what I'm talking about, be nice. I'm putting it in a negative light on purpose. If you want to hear it put in a really good light, I'll give you a place to look. But here's the reason this is a sadistic view, in my opinion. Because even though you don't have a free will in this view, even though your besetting sins and your actions have been ordained by God, here's the kicker, guys. You will be held accountable for your own actions. Yes, you will. So, could this possibly be true? That God is this controlling, this much of a a sicko, he kind of likes watching you squirm. He's ordained your squirming, and then he's going to hold you accountable for the squirming. Could that possibly be true? 
Well, <sighs> don't throw rocks. Some of this might be true. Hold on, it's getting weird. I know it. There are some verses in the Bible that talk about God foreknowing people. What does that mean? Christians disagree. There are some verses in the Bible that talk about God knowing things and allowing things that maybe we wouldn't allow if we knew about it. What does that mean? How do we reconcile that? There are some verses in the Bible that talk about God hardening people. What does that mean? Well, guys, I want to be really honest with you. I don't think that this is accurate. I don't think that God is a sadistic control freak at all. I think all of this is false. But if you went to the same blog that I got the first quotes from, Desiring God, and you read some of John Piper's entries, he does believe this stuff. And he will put a spin on it and, and say it in a light that you'll read that and you'll think, huh, that's odd. I can see how you could be a Christian and still believe this. I feel dizzy. So <laughs> I'm just saying, Anthony thinks... Highly skeptical. I'm going to say absolutely not. God is not a sadistic control freak. This one does not work. But be aware, there are some Christians that may not say it in those words, but they have a sadistic control freak God. Be gracious with them. In relationship with God, I think they'll change their mind. But here are some reasons that I think this one doesn't work. And it might hit close to home for some of us. One of my professors, at least, would be throwing rocks at me and booing right now. But this one doesn't work, just like the other ones don't work. Because why are we still here? Why is God so patient? Why does he go through all the trouble of pleading with us? Why did he come down from heaven and be humiliated? And why did he go through the trouble of the cross? Seriously, this doesn't sound like somebody that's very smart. If his whole thing is he wants to control people, it seems like he's punting all the time. It's like, oh, geez, now I have to be patient. Now I have to intervene. Now I have to be incarnated. Now I have to be tortured and killed. Good grief. I just think that if God's primary motivator is to control people, it seems like he's not doing that great of a job because it's costing him an awful lot. Does that make sense? I don't think this one works at all as a primary motivator. And I want to add one more question at the end of this list to top it off. I think these questions kill all the other motivations for God. And there's one more that does too, and that's this. What does God get out of the deal anyway? What does God get out of it? He's done a lot. It's a thick book, guys. There are some crazy stories in there. God's gone through a lot. He's sacrificed a lot. He's spent a lot of time and energy. What's the payoff? What's the payoff? And I don't think that any of these motivators work, ultimately. I don't think you can read through the Bible and say the egomaniac God got anything he wanted. I don't think that you can read through the Bible and think that a God that was all about fighting with the devil would be happy when all of his opponents are gone. The sadistic control freak has not much left to control. This doesn't work. There's no payoff unless we have a fourth motivation, which is, of course, that God is driven by love. Now, if you've been paying attention to the attributes sermon, as all of you have, you could throw a yellow, yellow card right now or a yellow flag on the play and say, hey... Isn't he just driven by his character? Well, yes, but for the sake of this sermon, we're going to sum that up by saying love. God is driven by love. Look at this. Why are we still here? Because God still wants what he always wanted, relationship with you. When Israel had totally tanked it, when they had rebelled to the point that they had to be judged, 
This is God giving them some vision for the future. He says through his prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 34, no longer, he's talking about the future, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You're here because God wants relationship with you. The reason he didn't flip the switch and wipe out Adam and Eve was because he was driven by love to want a relationship with Adam and Eve. He wasn't driven by ego to snuff them out. This is the only way that makes sense. Let's look at another one. Why is he so patient with us? And roll into that. Why does he plead with us? Why is he trying to get us back? Why does he wait through all of our crap? All of the relapses and going back to old habits and barely chugging along for some of us years. Why does he do that? Because God thinks we're worth the wait. 2 Peter 3.9 says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So many people say, well, if God is good and there's evil, why doesn't God just wipe out the evil? Do you realize if he did that, he'd be wiping out all the evil people too? God says, I would rather wait. I would rather suffer through this evil so that they could come to repentance and know me. I want relationship. They're worth the wait. I'm not slow, guys. I'm waiting for you because I care about you because my motivator is love. Let's look at some more. Why the incarnation in the cross? Why come and be humiliated for an entire lifetime only to be tortured and killed? Why would anyone do that? Why would God do that? What motivates him? Because God wants us at any cost. Look at this. Matthew 23. Read Matthew 23. Go home, pick it up. You will be shocked if you've never read Matthew 23 before. Jesus is lighting up his enemies, the Pharisees. He is like leaving no stone uncovered in their character. It is like an epic rant. It's amazing. I I think they ran home to their moms after Matthew 23. And he's on his way to the cross. He's walking right to his crucifixion. He's talking about Israel and he's saying, I'm just crazy mad at you guys. Why are you like this? And then at the end of it, he says this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Even furious at his enemies, Going to the cross, he's letting them know the reason I'm doing this is because I want you. Why would a hen gather chicks under its wings? Because something life-threatening was coming and the hen would rather die than the chicks. God is saying, "I I was willing to give my life for you so many times, but you wouldn't even come when I called. Now I've got to go do this. God wants you at any cost because he's driven by love. But what does he get out of this? This is the question that sealed the deal for me. I remember I was sitting in this building and I realized, what is the end game for God? I mean, think about it. He gets a new creation, right? And a new heaven and a new earth. But he made the old ones. We messed it up. That's like getting your car back from the shop. When I get my car back from the shop, I don't rejoice like somebody just gave me a new car. 
You know what I mean? Especially not if, Keith, God forbid, when you're 16, if you wreck the car and I have to pay for it and then get it back from the shop, you're grounded. I'm not celebrating. You're crying out loud. That's not a payoff. Does that make sense? Don't wreck my car. I trust you. All right, moving on. The only thing that God really gets out of the deal is us. Us. He gets us alive, out of hell, and to himself. He conquers death so that we can live. We let death in the house, guys. He conquers it through his effort, through his suffering. He saves us from hell, which we deserve, so that we can be in heaven. And he gets us to himself. No longer kidnapped, no longer held captive by the captain of darkness, the devil. Captain of darkness, just imagine him like a letter jacket, like darkness high, like Captain Satan. Sorry. Forgive me, that was bad. We're alive, we're out of hell, we're all his for all eternity. That's the payoff. And let me just submit to you, that makes absolutely zero sense. None. If God has any other motivator other than love, because do you know who we are? Let me me ask you a different way. Do you know who you are? Do Do you have a clear picture of exactly who you are currently or used to be before Jesus? Do we deserve to be some sort of cosmic prize for the Lord? Oh, ouch. No. He makes us glorious. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He makes us saints. We are none of that on our own. So even the us he gets is good by his effort. Does that make sense? None of this makes sense unless God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The end of this message is the most quoted verse of all time, John 3.16, because this is and must be God's primary motivation. The alarm goes off, he slaps it, he hops out of bed, and his heart is not filled with wrath, it's not filled with ego, it's not filled with a desire to control, it's filled and driven by love. And if we don't remember God is driven by that, we don't have an accurate picture of who he is. Amen? Amen. I'm going to give it to Chris to close. Wow, thank you. Hmm. I'm just going to pray, um, share a few words, and then pray, and then we'll dismiss. So, Father in heaven, um, you know, actually, we're going to talk for a second. So often, revelation is a precursor to experience. And so if you just got a revelation... That God's not vindictive. He's not mean. He doesn't have uh, ulterior motives. He doesn't have an ego. And you want to experience the loving truth of God? Now is a good time to do that. Right now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Right now. And so I'm just going to pray. Lead us in. And uh, if you want to, you can. I'm going to repent for the misbeliefs that I've had about God. Um, and receive his love. And then we also are going to have a prayer team, people that would love to pray with you and uh, give you a greater dose of what you experienced tonight. So, Father in heaven, we repent. God, we change. We change our minds for anything that we believe that was not in your character or in your intent, God. And we receive the truth that you are loving, 
and your love is made manifest through your actions. Thank you. Thank you, God. You know, I remember when um, my parents used to tell me I, they loved me. They used to tell me, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I, there was a few moments in my life um, where I did not believe them. And that stopped me from receiving the benefits of their love. But it did not stop their love. And so, God, we open ourselves up to experience your love, to be vulnerable enough to be seen by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming again. Prayer team and food in the back. Thanks, bro.